As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hi, it's Judy Gould and this is Working Scientist, a Nature Careers podcast. Welcome to this series on the podcast, all about leadership. Each episode in this series explored leadership from a different perspective. We'll hear from academic leaders, research institute leaders, industry leaders, young leaders, as well as someone who studies leadership and what it really means. I try to find out what these people think leadership is, how they got to these positions that they're in, where they learnt their skills and what they think of the scientific leadership we have today. But before we get started, just a quick thing. It'll only take a minute, but we're looking for your feedback. So if you have some time, either now if you need a break or after the episode, please could you head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to leave us a review because we want to know what you think of the show and more importantly we would like to know what you would like to hear on the show. So thanks that's all now back to it. In this episode I get an insight into leadership with Dr Gemma Modinos. She is the outgoing chair of the Young Academy of Europe. She is also a research group leader and a reader in neuroscience and mental health at King's College London in the UK. So Gemma holds these two different positions of leadership, one as the outgoing chair of the Young Academy of Europe and one as a group leader. It's not always easy to balance your time, but in this episode, Gemma shares how she does it. And as always, the big question to kick us off what does leadership mean to you? So to me, being a leader means someone who is in a position where they are shaping the vision and the direction, but how that is executed, you know, back in the day, it was more a style of command and control and not so much transparency as to what led to that decision. Uh, whereas what I like to, 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 to implement in my practice 
Um, and I think a lot of people that I interact with in the context of you know, young scholars, young PIs, which is what we are in the Young Academy of Europe, is moving to a more collaborative leadership. And where did you learn about this leadership style or, or any of the other leadership skills that you currently have? So the first thing that I did when I got my first fellowship to transition to independence was to take up any trainings I could about leadership and about uh, unconscious biases, diversity matters. So things that I knew could influence the way I led, even at the subconscious level. So my university provides quite a few of this, and that's where I started. Then I also applied for the Academy of Medical Sciences Sustain program, which is a mentoring and support program for women in science at this career stage, and I was elected. So we also had training on leadership as part of that, and this concept of the collaborative leadership started coming up. Also at my university, there is different courses, at different uh, career development courses at, the, at different career levels. Um, the thing that I feel was a bit lacking is management training, because in the leadership courses, they make it very clear, you know, there's always a slide about the difference between leadership and management and how a leadership, you know, you inspire, you have the vision, you, 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 you take people with you, blah. But then actually you do have to do management. You have to manage finances. You have to manage difficult conversations. You have to manage, you know, you, you're line managing people. I feel like in academia, as well, oh, no, I, you know, I'm not a manager. I'm a... I'm a group leader, I'm a PI, but you are doing management. So that's something that um, I've had to look into separately. So where did you look to find management training? So, so far I've used the university resources. So until now, you know, I had looked on this skill forge that we have with the, with the different training. And I've I had registered, as I said, for the leadership and the unconscious bias and the diversity matters, but I had not paid at any, you know, whenever I saw something about management popping up, I was not, I, was, I wasn't thinking that was for me. And so that's, that's what I've done so far. So your, your scientific career has taken you across Europe. You started with your master's in Barcelona in Spain, and then you moved to Groningen in the Netherlands for your PhD. And now you're based at King's College London in London, the UK. So can you tell me a little bit about the different styles of leadership that you experienced in those countries? I feel this is something quite common to Southern European countries where it is a bit more command and control in the sense that the, the senior person draws from their own experience to direct, you know, people um, and, and, you know, obviously to the best of their ability and also with a good heart behind it. Um, but it's less, there's less hearing out of the, of the younger generations, for example. Whereas once I moved to, um, you know, Northern Western Europe, like the Netherlands and, and the UK, then it feels a little bit more approachable, less hierarchical, the leadership style. There were still leaders who were kind of sheltering. I think that's, that's probably what was happening or not even, you know, just not, not thinking that perhaps um, those are things that you would like to share with your, with your team if you're struggling with the finance or you're struggling with, with, with management or you're struggling with funding or... Uh, that's not something that I've seen until now. I got to a position of more seniority and then you have candid conversations with 
the person that was, you know, my PhD supervisor or my postdoc supervisor. And I think, okay, so everyone's, you've also gone through this. Um, so it's interesting when it starts changing and then it's more of a, an equal, an equal conversation. I'm trying to start doing that earlier with, with the lab so that they know really what's, what's happening. Okay, so I now want to ask you a little bit about your role as the chair for the Young Academy of Europe. Um, so firstly, can you tell us a little bit about what the Young Academy of Europe is, but also what does your role as the chair of the Academy involve? What sort of things do you need to do? Yes, yeah, so the Young Academy of Europe is a, is a grassroots bottom-up initiative uh, established in 2012 of uh, a group of young scholars, Ma many of them, most of them were ERC starting grant grantees, um, to, for people who have outspoken views on science policy and policy for science. So it's really a network of people at currently between alumni and current members, we have about 300 Young Academy of Europe fellows and our activities involve from advising, you know, um, science advice for European Commission. Now uh, we are also involved in several policy for science initiatives, such as, you know, the research assessment reform, uh, we a precarity of research careers, etc. We also do a lot of uh, networking and science outreach. And so being the chair of the Young Academy gives me, you know, the freedom to propose initiatives and, and try and shape the vision and the the next two years for the Young Academy of Europe, what type of activities we will focus on and I can run, you know, pro make these proposals to the board. So some examples or how about we do, try and do something more about widening participation. So there's quite a bit of this freedom of proposing, uh, shaping the vision. There's also, of course, you have to do quite a lot of engagement. So there's a request for interviews, uh, sometimes, you know, kind of last minute uh, when there's been a new, um, you know, some president of a country has made a statement that is relevant to ac academies, then sometimes we're asked to comment on that, invited presentations uh, to disseminate the group, the group what we do, or to give our opinion. For example, at ESOF, I had recently a keynote on precarity and sustainability of research careers. Um, and I've also spoken at the Vitae workshop last year in the UK about mental health of young PIs. So there's a lot of this sort of engagements and invitations that give us the opportunity to provide our insights. But everything that is to be commented on, of course, is run by the board. So I do not make decisions without running things by the board. And Monique Trump is uh, my vice chair, and she is uh, extremely involved as well and active in many of the science policy and science advice topics. So we, you know, I'm able to share the workload with Monique for many of these kind of invited talks and, and workshops. Um, so that's worked really well with Monique. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. 
So how do you balance your time? Like, How do you balance your time between being the chair of the Young Academy of Europe, but also to lead your group of researchers? You know, a question we hear a lot from early career researchers is that, you know, is our leaderships, are the leadership activities distractions from the research work that you're doing? And, and can you balance the two together? Mm. Yeah, so the thing is that it's not a constant, they are not the, the research and the and the YAE work, for example, I'm also involved in the Schizophrenia International Research Society and I was in the board the last two years, so this is not the only uh, board I've been in. Um, it's not a constant amount of pr- pressure uh, in both. So I've, I've been, you know, trying to combine when the research is more intensive or I've been writing a grant and I'm getting to the end of it and then communicate with the Young Academy board, actually, I'm not going to be able to do Young Academy of Europe duties for the next two weeks. What is really unhelpful is when people are busy and then they disappear or stop replying to your emails, then you don't know what's happening. But if you plan it and you say, actually, this is going to be a really busy period, um, I won't be able to chair the meeting or I won't be able to, you know, then other people can pick it up. And if they can't pick it up, you know, we might need to say no. Uh, and in terms of the, and, and, and the other way around. So there's been, so I've been trying to fit it in the periods in which one is calmer, then you do more of this one. And when this is calmer, you do more of this one. And something that I've learned and practiced in the last couple of years, and actually it's not, and it's been a bit of an eye opener. So saying no has been um, something I've, polite no to prioritizing what's really important at this time or not and if someone asks me you know can you come give a presentation in the group or can you you know write a book chapter or actually um if i've said no i'm extremely busy at the moment or if you say actually i'm really busy until july but after that i'll be very happy to do it it's fine it's actually fine you know, when I was, when you're younger, you think, oh, every opportunity I have to take it because they will never come again. Or if this person thinks I'm rude, then they won't want to work with me. They will think I'm not collaborative. And of course, I still sometimes still feel like that, hoping it's not the case. But if you're open and transparent, everyone is very busy. So everyone knows, I feel, that you might need to say no to, to some things. And, and, it's, and it's been fine. You are in quite a unique position with the with the Young Academy of Europe in that you you get to be involved in a lot of policy. You get to see a lot of the policy decisions being made and you speak to a lot of people who are involved in policy and, and leadership uh, in science as a whole. So I wonder, given the position that you're in, do you think that science is served well by its leaders? So for this question, I want to think about what we mean by by its leaders, because if we think about scientific leadership, we tend to think about scientists, so people who lead groups or people who, you know, who are in positions of, of leadership in terms of even heads of department who also um, shape the vision of a, of the research of a department, uh, to deans, to um, you know, but by the vice deans of research, uh, etc. In a university, so I think that 
in terms of, of this leadership, I think it is well served. I want to believe it's well served. These people who are performing the science, leading the science, touching the science, and can have a vision of where things should, should go. Of course, leadership of science also involves funders, for example. And uh, I think that that is a, a great determinant of how science is, where science, you know, what direction it has and who is funded and what projects are funded. And so um, in terms of funders, I think that now with things like the research assessment reform, hopefully with having funders on board, we can also make sure that there's perhaps more diversity and that the way funds are allocated uh, doesn't disadvantage the certain groups that are currently being disadvantaged. You know that we know that uh, women tend to apply less, but also, you know, maybe less successful in securing funding. We know that at the EU level, there's underrepresentation of, for example, ERC grants in EU 13 countries. So um, I think that needs, you know, I think people, funders are working hard on this. And then, of course, we also have governments and governments make decisions about the funds allocated for research to funders. Mostly, you know, if there's core funding for universities, then that too. And I think that's also a really big contributor to science leadership and, and where it's going. And the thing that we are realizing and that is in the conversation a lot is it seems like among researchers, we are agreeing upon a lot of the issues, but we're not being so successful at actually lead, reaching the policymakers, and by poli the policymakers in governments and uh, mainly, and that is that is a tricky issue, and and I don't think we have an answer of how to actually engage uh, engage them better. So are you saying that it's about bridging the gap between the scientists, the funders, and the government, and that maybe there's a, a lack of communication between these? between these different groups that means that science isn't very well served by its leaders? I'm not saying it's not as well served. I think it would probably be better served because not just science in sense of um, discoveries, but science in the way of what, how science is being performed, what are the structures, what is a scientific career and what is the attractiveness of, of that. Um, I think that it that could be better served if we were able to reach, you know, governments and policymakers better and and they also listened um, better. So I think I think it's, it's, it's a, there's a bit of a disconnect between how we see science policy um, or no policy for science among researchers and how, you know, perhaps government think about policy for science. And, and that needs to be married better. So uh, final question that I have for you, which I know that many young researchers would love the opportunity to ask uh, people who are in leadership positions, which is, do you have any advice on being a leader and training for leadership positions? Well, the first thing I would say is that it's not for, not everyone has to do it. Not everyone has to strive to become a PI or to be involved in 
chairing an organization or being president or being in boards. There's very diverse career paths that people can do. So, but if it's something that you aspire to, to and, and you would like to do or you are transitioning to it, I would say training is important and the earlier, the better. So at the postdoctoral level, if you're thinking that you would like to apply for PI funding and try and become a group leader, I would say to start training on, on leadership early is good because once you've, you've done it, then you're in it. And then you're starting your own lab at the same time that you need to do all this, tra- you want to do all these training courses. And then I would also say, well, it's important to remember how you've been supervised and how you, you've seen people in leadership positions um, perform and act and then take from that what you think resonates with you and what you think are good practices um, and, and don't do the things that you didn't like. Gemma, thank you so much for sharing this with me today. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you so much to everyone for listening to this episode of Working Scientist. If you have a minute, as I asked, please do leave us a review or leave us a comment on what you'd like us to cover on the show in the coming series. And that's it for us. Thanks for listening. I'm Julie Gould. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.